You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome in. Uh, to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Uh, before we get started, uh, just a quick announcement because I wasn't able to sneak it in quickly enough to the normal announcements. But uh, as many of you know, we are not doing men's breakfast this month, even though it is on the calendars deceiving you in the restrooms. Uh, but instead, we're doing men's hangout this coming Friday the 13th in Huffman. Uh, it's going to be kind of a backyard hangout. We're calling it the brother, father, son hangout. So if you have sons, bring your sons from age zero to 80, you know, whatever that looks like, and uh, come out and have a good time. It's going to be uh, a good time to hang out. We're going to eat some barbecue together, and uh, it's going it's to be a good time. So this coming uh, Friday, October 13th, be there if you are a man. And if you want to register, come let me know. doesn't cost anything. just need to kind of get account for it if possible. Uh, but if not, just show up anyways. We'll figure it out. So anyways, uh, good deal. So I would like to pray. Uh, like um, we mentioned, been going through Mark. We're kind of hitting the last uh, few months here that we're in it, and we have a, a great text. I actually was supposed to cover all the way to 52, but I didn't read the fine print, so I do apologize. Uh, Court's going to do a better job at coming back to hit on some of those themes, but um, we may mention it. We'll see here. But yeah, let's pray together, and then we'll hop into the text. So bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. For this particular passage, this passage of Scripture is a great window into uh, really the sorrow of your son Jesus Christ, what he endured for us, what it means that it was your will to crush him and to give us life in that. And so now we have life in you, we have great joy in you, and so I ask that you would help me to be faithful to your word and that you would help us to be strong to listen, not be distracted, and to take great joy and comfort as we're changed by your word and by your grace. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so I want to start off with a little church history lesson. I think this is important for us. Really good, okay? Because what, what we kind of get here, uh, and so I'm going to state the truth, and I'm going to kind of talk about why we're talking about it, which is uh, we believe as Christians the Orthodox view is that Christ is fully man and fully God, okay? So he's not half and half necessarily like a hybrid, but he holds both natures without confusion. They can't be separated. They can't be combined awkwardly, but he is both and as he took on flesh, okay? And this matters because we're going to see Christ uh, really wrestling with some fear, some agony, some anxiety about what he is about to endure, right? Christ knows what he's going to do on the cross, and there's a real wrestling going on within him. And so it's very easy, if we're not careful, to accidentally kind of go off into some bad doctrine on either side of the ditch. And so I want to talk to you about the year 451 A.D., okay? And in 451 A.D., in Asia Minor, there was uh, a lot of heresies going on, as was the early church. There's about seven, uh, you know, kind of creeds or, or councils that happened to kind of make sure we solidify doctrine as a church. And during this time, uh, they met in uh Chalcedonia. I've been told I pronounced that wrong. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. If you got a different one, rock on, okay? Um, <clears throat> anyway, so what came from this council at Chalcedonia was the Chalcedonian Creed. And one of the heresies they were really kind of trying to argue and kind of make sure they got a good handle on was this heresy of uh, Christ's two natures. So him being fully God, fully man, no confusion, no separation, uh, it's truly what he is. He is truly God and truly man, um, which we believe the scriptures do teach that. So here's what they said at the council. This is their little creed they came up with, and I want to read it together. We don't have to read it out loud, but I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along behind me. Here's what it says. <clears throat> we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. And here's the key point. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Okay, there's a lot of words in there, but uh, the focus is that uh, it cannot be confused, it cannot be changed, it cannot be divided, it cannot be separated, but Christ fully shares in human nature apart from sin, and he fully shares in divine nature, and these somehow mysteriously and God's amazing work work together without being conflated, confused, or awkward, okay? And this is very important because, like I mentioned, uh, Jesus in every way suffered as a human suffers. In every way, he experienced the weakness of our 
human flesh. He also experienced those things. He got hungry. He got tired, right? And now if you were to say that God got hungry and got tired, that's a bold statement, right? Because God doesn't change. God doesn't need sleep. And so this is why it is important to think through these things. And my goal is not to do a full lesson. I'm going to unfortunately leave you right there. But the point is that what we see wrestling in Christ as a man, we can't conflate with God wrestling that way. That is an important distinction that we must hold and be confused by and share, and that's totally fine. And so I wanted to share that as we got into it. There's my history lesson. Uh, Let's continue, okay? I want to get into the text. So what I would like to do is I want to start with verse 26 through 31. I want to kind of see the scene that's being set up for us, and then I really want to focus our time, uh, what happens uh, the rest of the verses down to 42 in the Garden of Gethsemane, because I think there's lots of things that we ought to glean from that. But Let's go ahead and start in verse 26. I'm going to read down to 31, and we'll talk through a few points together. So, verse 26 of Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, so what we get here is we just had Jesus that just, you know, was very eager to celebrate the Passover, right? That's what Cor talked about last week. Very eager to celebrate it with them. Finally gets to do that, okay? He gets to celebrate the Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper, gives them many many graces, gets to share that with them. And then what we see now is they finish singing a hymn together, which is probably the Hallel, which was Psalm 113 to 118. This is the way that they close out the Passover every year, the Jewish people. It's how they celebrated it. So Jesus sings the word with them, which is really great. I always just want to pause and say it's really important for us to do that together. It's why we sing on a Sunday. Uh, it's important to sing the truths of God together together. Because what we believe, and it strengthens us, and it's amazing to see. This is one of the only texts that says that Jesus did those things, right? He sang. Uh, he was truly man. And it's, it's an amazing thing to think about singing the hymn with Jesus. Obviously, our hymns are about Jesus, so either way. Um, <clears throat> but what happens here is they sing, and then with that, they head to the Mount of Olives. Now, we see a pattern here. What's been happening uh, pretty much this whole week. Now, the Mount of Olives, Jesus went there often. That was kind of his quiet place to pray. But what we see in the kind of the Easter week, if you will, uh, or Holy Week, is that they would basically be in Jerusalem during the day, they would eat in Bethany, and then they would go out to the Mount of Olives at nighttime to kind of pray through the night. This is kind of repeat that week. And so Jesus isn't getting a lot of sleep. He's doing a lot of praying, uh, and they kind of continue the same thing here, right? And this is important because we're going to see that Judas knows exactly as he goes to betray him after the supper, he knows exactly where Christ is going to be, right, out the Mount of Olives, and that's where he leads the Sanhedrin and the, the you know, pitchfork army to come and arrest him in some shady, sketchy trial and uh, to ultimately try to take him down, which they couldn't do, obviously. Um, but that's what we see. And so Jesus, just kind of after singing the hymn, I'm sure it was a sweet moment, just looks to all of them and says, you guys are all going to fall away. This Greek word is basically where we get scandalized. And he's saying, you're basically, you're going to commit sin. You guys are all going to be headlong into sin before the night's over. And uh, obviously, you know, you've got to love the disciples' passion, saying, not me, Lord, I won't do it. But what he does is he quotes Zechariah 13. He says, look, this, this is being fulfilled. 
that they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so I want to read that text together because it does give more context for us. So um, looking at uh, Zechariah chapter 13, starting in verse 7, it says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And so what's happening in this context is uh, right before this in verses 1 through 6, God is saying, I will destroy your idols. They will not stand. The idols that you have built, I will take care of them. They will be gone. And then he goes on to talk about in this prophecy how that's going to happen. And how is he going to do it? He says, I'm going to strike the shepherd that's next to me, and the sheep will be scattered, and all these things will happen. It will be devastating. Two-thirds will fall away, but I will find one-third. And then what will they do? They will say, we are your people and you are our God. Right? He's building a people for himself. This is the story of the gospel. So Jesus is quoting this saying, look, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be fulfilled. This text that was given hundreds of years ago is now going to be fulfilled in me being struck, right? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The shepherd, the good shepherd gets crushed. The sheep scatter. They abandon him. And that's the story. And then Jesus hints for his resurrection. He says, look, but afterward, okay, gives him some encouragement. Afterward, I'm going to Galilee. Uh, I'll meet you there, okay? So he's hinting towards his resurrection, uh, and then, once again, Peter in Peter fashion. I don't want to make fun of him because this really is uh, you know, a bold statement. He's, he's throwing himself out there. But he's saying, look, Lord, it ain't going to be me, right? I won't deny you. I'll go to death with you. I'm with you to the end. It says all the disciples got encouraged and agreed. Now, I do want to point out, if you remember when Jesus was talking at the table with them at the Last Supper, he said, look, um, there's one of you that are with me right now that dips their hand in the same dish that's going to betray me. And they all, remember, they all asked, well, is, is it I, Lord, right? They all had a sense in that moment of their weakness. They're like, Lord, is it me? Don't let it be me, right? They had the thought that it could possibly be me because I'm weak. And so they were nervous about it. But then something happens in the few moments of that to now where they all feel very confident it's not going to be them at all that does any sort of betrayal and that they're going to be faithful even unto death. See, the disciples, they fail to see their own weakness, right? They fail to see their own frailties. They kind of look, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but they turn to self-reliance, self-determination, rather than Christ's reliance, and that never ends well. Um, And so Jesus doubles down. He lets Peter know, no, I promise you, even before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He's saying, before the sun comes up, baby, that's when it's going to happen. That's how quickly you're about to deny me, and you don't even know it right now. You're about to do it. I'm about to be uh, betrayed by you and all the others. And then, obviously, Peter doubles down back and says, no way. So that's kind of the scene we get. And so from there, we get to verse 32 where they start to go. They go to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, that's on the Mount of Olives, and uh, then begins the scene that I want to focus on uh, for the rest of our time here. So what I want to do, I want to kind of just us to remember. So in this scene, it's a very popular, it's in all four uh, Gospels uh, in kind of different ways, but it's Jesus is 
coming to the Father. He's in extreme agony about what is about to happen with the cross and all of that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, what I want us to see here in this scene is this isn't just simply a quiet time of Jesus' prayer, but what's going on here is war, okay? This is Christ warring with Satan and all evil and all darkness for the sake of enduring the cross and rescuing the sheep, okay? And so we often, you may have heard a sermon preached, and I'm sure I've done this too, where it's like, hey, the devil thought he was winning when he crucified Christ, and then uh, he realized afterwards, oh, I didn't win anymore. But that's actually not a good way to explain it, because if you remember throughout the Gospels, the devil has been trying to get Jesus not to go to the cross for a long time. That's why when Peter says, look, Lord, I'm not going to let you do that. It's not going to happen. No one's going to kill you. What does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, right? Because it was Satan saying, no, no, don't go to the cross. We're not going to let that happen. We're not going to do that. We're your boys. We got your back, right? It was Satan that was tempting him to just usurp the whole cross thing and take all the kingdoms of the earth now if they would just bow to Satan or to throw himself off the temple and glorify himself because the angels would catch him so they wouldn't strike his foot on a stone, right, and on and on. And so what's happening here is a war. Uh, Christ is enduring conflict and war, and he is going to triumph. That's the end of the story. We know that, and it's a gracious thing, and we'll talk about it today. But so what I want to do is I want to take this time. There's lots of implications for us, and I'll mention a few as we go through, but I really want us just to look to Christ this morning in the text. I have four things we see Christ do here that not only does he do in this scene, but he continually does for us that I think is very important for us to consider, to worship him through and for and to feel loved by our God and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. So let's go through these. Number one is Christ's endurance. Okay, Christ endures. I want to look at his endurance. So Christ suffered incredible agony for the sins of his people. Incredible agony. Let's read uh, verses 32 to 34 to get a glimpse of it. It says, And then when they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, when we think of Christ's sufferings, we rightly so, we think of the cross, right? We think of the crucifixion, which was a great suffering. It was a great suffering, uh, not just physically, but we know much more than that, right? Which we'll get into in a moment. But, um... I want us not to miss that what's going on in the garden right now is also suffering, right? He was to bear the sins of all people. And what we see in the garden is he's doing that right now. That is the agony as he's bearing the sins of his people, okay? So Christ's sufferings here were so profound and so difficult that he says, I am suffering unto death, right? It's this image that Christ might not even make it to the cross because this, this agony, this suffering is so overbearing, so powerful, making him so weak. It's crushing him so bad that he feels like as if he's going to die right now. That is deep agony, my friends. It's very deep agony. And if you read the account of Luke uh, and Matthew, and they give some other colors, but in the, in the account of Luke, he talks about that it was, it was so intense that he began to sweat uh, like drops of blood. Which, you know, if you, there's medical conditions where you can get so anxious that can really happen, right? So we know that Christ, whatever is going on here, is he is enduring a lot of suffering, a lot of sorrow, a lot of agony. Now, it's important to ask the question, 
if he's God, what is he so worried about, right? He knows what's going to happen. He planned this. He knows what his plan is. He's been talking about it for this three years in ministry now at least, right, where he's saying, hey, this is going to happen. This is coming. But remember, that is not just a simple physical torture or abandonment of his closest friends that is bothering him. Yeah, I'm sure that's a factor as a human. Sure. He endured those sufferings. He experienced abandonment, and it was tough on him, right, as a man. But it's much more than that, right? Like we mentioned, he is a bearing the wrath of the Father, right? He is bearing in his body, in himself, the wrath of God aimed at sinners, aimed at his sheep, the eternal wrath. There's no way we can like, maximize that with words. It's impossible, right? He is about to endure great suffering, great hardship. Let us remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, the most, one of the most, I didn't say the most, one of the most beautiful texts in the scriptures. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? What's happening right here is God is making Jesus Christ who knew no sin to become sin in your place so that you might become God's righteousness and he might become the target of wrath that you deserve, right? That you deserve. Very important factor here. So he's about to bear something we can't even begin to measure or quantify or think about or understand or know. He is sorrowed beyond belief. Isaiah 53 prophesies well about him when it says this, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom was the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Christ is a man of sorrows. He is bearing our sorrows on himself, and he will continue to bear them as he walks like a sheep that's led to the slaughter and silent, right? And he's going to walk that way to the cross, to Calvary, and he's going to pay the ultimate price. He's going to absorb all of God's wrath aimed at you like a sponge, every drop in Christ, in his body, and his shed blood will be poured out for the sins of many. This is an amazing thing we see happening here. So when we look at Christ falling to the ground in agony, begging the disciples to pray with him and to be watchful, we are seeing an amazing thing in history, the God-man. The God-man, right? God becoming both just and the justifier of those believed because of his shedding of his own blood. The only one worthy not to die of sin is taking sin upon himself that we might live. So I think it begs maybe asking the question, how can we entertain such sins that have caused this sorrow upon our Savior, right? That's a good question. Look, I know we're sinful, we struggle, I get it, okay? But when we sin and we're battling against our flesh, we can't be flippant about these things, right? I want you to remember pictures like this, like the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ in agony as he bears the sins of the people. And we can't just go off and sin willy-nilly, like, ah, it's all good, Christ will forgive me. 
What a mockery it would be to the crucified Lord for us to do that. As we see him in agony under such weight and pressure, I pray that it helps us battle our sin in new ways, that it drives us to say, I will not scorn and stain myself with the same sin that caused this. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect if you have that mentality, but I think it's so important. We've got to remember, look, we, we have a weak flesh. We are battling all the time against the flesh with temptations. And Christ is being very gracious here to call uh, to us out of the word. We say, look, look what this is. Look at this sorrow to the point of sweating drops of blood is what our sin caused and what the wrath of God is. And so let us rejoice that we've been saved by it. But let us remember as we fight our sin that this is not a funny battle. This is not a flippant life. This is very serious war, just like Christ was enduring here. And we have triumph. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, number two. I know it's a little bit heavy, but I want to continue. I want to look at Christ's prayer. So we have his endurance of all the suffering and the sorrow, him taking that as the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Now we also have his prayer. What an amazing thing to be able to look into the window. Look, there were so many prayers that was only between Christ and the Father that we will never know about. Well, I don't say never. We won't know about in this life. They were not recorded for us, so we don't need them right now. But Christ, all the time, you see this all throughout the book of Mark, all throughout the Gospels, where he just sneaks away to a quiet place and just prays. He gets alone with God. And in this moment, it's no different, okay? Christ does not resort to fleeing to get rid of his problem. He does not resort to going to someone else you know, some word of wisdom to kind of help him make sense of it. No, what does he do? He goes right to the Father. He drops on his face and he begs the Lord for help. He pleads with God. He prays. So I want to look at uh, a few things. Let's look at the content of his prayer. So let's look at verse 35 together. It says this. So going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Okay, this is great. This is a genuine uh, prayer full of honesty, agony, and hope. Christ is falling upon his face and begging the Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass, let it pass from me. So what does he pray for? Well, he prays that if there's any other way for this cup of wrath poured out, for the sins of people, if there's any other way to make this happen, Lord, let it be. And then Matthew kind of records that the first thing is like, hey, if there's another way, let it be. And then the second prayer is like, okay, if I have to do this, Lord, <laughs> let it pass from me, right? And so Jesus is kind of, he's coming, obviously, to the conclusion, and he knows that he has to do it, but he's begging the Lord for help. I also uh, want to mention that you know, he cries, Abba, Father. This is a, a beautiful phrase here. Uh, Abba is a Syrian word, and so often there would be repeat for um, uh, like an to emphatic nature of what you're saying. Okay, That's why sometimes Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, right? It's kind of an emphasis. Now, I have heard a lot of people use Abba, and I, I'm not trying to be too funny here. Uh, I, like They use like, oh, is this good translation would be daddy. Okay, I don't encourage you to use daddy in your prayers. I'm not going to judge you if you do. But we have ruined that word in the English language, okay? So the point is that it was, a, it was a term of endearment, right? He's calling out to his father whom has known him, whom he knows, and he's begging him for help, okay? He's asking, if this cup could be removed, Lord, let it be, but nonetheless, your will be done. So there is this desire to be rescued from physical pain and 
from the wrath of God, but also a greater desire that says, but nonetheless, whatever happens, your will be done. So Christ prays for the will of the Father to be done. There's a lot of lessons in that for us. Um, But I also want to mention just the fervency of his prayer, okay? So not only was it, uh, you know, praying for a lot of good things, but it was also fervent. And we actually get this from Hebrews 5, 7, which I believe is commenting right on this moment, but nonetheless comments on Christ's prayer life in general. And it says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I love that, right? Christ is looking down death in the face. He is. This is the night he's betrayed. The next day he is to be crucified and killed, dead, buried. And it says that he made many fervent, loud cries to the Lord who was able to save him from death. He knew God was able to save him. He knew the Father could just boom in an instant. Jesus knew that he could in himself crush those who came to get him. He knows that. But he trusted in the Lord with fervency, and he prayed. I also want to mention that he prayed multiple times, right? This is an important thing to consider. Uh, He prayed not once, not twice, but three times, right? He's kind of going back and forth because he's going there and praying, pouring out his heart to the Father. Then he's coming back, finding the disciples asleep and encouraging them. Then he goes back and does it some more, and he does this three times, right? And so I just want to point that out because when I was younger uh, at a church previous to this one, uh, I got some advice from an older gentleman that said, hey, look, man, you know, when I pray, I pray in faith. I go to my prayer closet, I pray one time for something, and that's it. And then I walk away, and I believe God's going to answer my prayer, and I don't think about it ever again. The Lord's got it. I said, phew. You know, I wanted to take advice, right? I'm like trying to learn. I'm young. I said, man, that doesn't sound right, man, you know? started thinking about uh, the fact that Jesus, you know, told us over and over again through analogies to be consistent in prayer. You guys remember that, right, where it's like, hey, look, if you go to your neighbor's house at 2 o'clock in the morning and you ask for bread because a stranger came and you need to host them, uh, you know, and they will still say, go away, I'm sleeping, get out of here. And he said, but you knock again. You said, no, I really need your bread, please. I got to host this. I got to get somebody. And he says, what's going to happen? Well, he's like, they're not going to give you bread because they're your friend, but they will give you bread because they want to sleep. They'll be very annoyed. And they'll say, just take the bread, get out of here. And Jesus said, in the same way, you should pray that way, right? It's a good analogy. Now, I don't think it means that the father's like, I don't, I'm not your friend, but I guess you can have it because you're so annoying. I don't think that's where he was going. Uh, analogies obviously do fall short in some areas, but he was teaching us to pray uh, consistently. And so Jesus goes back over and over again. He's begging the Lord for strength, asking the Lord for strength. And then not only the fervency, the consistency, and the content, but we also see the efficacy of his prayer, right? It's effectual. It has results. Um, His prayers lead to the triumph of this moment, right? They lead to the triumph of this moment. Now, this is kind of a side note, but kind of cool. What we get in the account of Luke is that uh, Jesus is actually ministered to. So as he's praying, God sends an angel from heaven to come minister to Christ and give him strength. And that's kind of when he gets the strength to say, okay, now we're going to come do this and, and we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to do this thing. It's, it's time. My betrayer's here. And so we see that the angel actually gives him strength. So God answers his prayer and giving him strength in that moment. And then obviously we see that the prayer was continual, right? Because it's what made him obviously, yes, I got I to take the cup and I'm going to go, right? And then he gets the ultimate triumph in the cross. Um, and so I think that's kind of important that what we see here is as he prays, uh, evil loses, uh, goodness wins, 
Christ triumphs. He is the victor. He is going to the cross. He will, with the joys that set before him, endure it, and he will ransom many under his name, his children, his sheep. The shepherd will bring them back into the fold. It's an amazing thing. Okay, number three. We also see Christ's compassion in this text, okay? Christ has great compassion on his sheep in this moment, okay? Let's read verses 37 through 38 and then 40 through 41. It says this, And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. I see Christ's compassion all over this text. Uh, For one, remember, Christ just announced to them a few verses before that they were all going to abandon him and betray him into sin, and they're going to leave him alone. But he's still hanging out with them, right? And not in like a passive-aggressive way, like, I hate you guys. You know, that's not what he's doing. He's actually uh, spending time with them. He's encouraging them with his words. He's telling them, he's pleading with them, look, don't, don't fall asleep. Watch with me. Pray with me that, I, that you might not enter into temptation because it's happening. What we just talked about is happening. Christ is pleading with them, okay? So having already warned them of the betrayal, he continues to plead for them to be watchful and to stay awake. Christ warns them, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay? It's willing, but the flesh is weak. Christ knows that his disciples love him and want to obey him and want to stand by him, but he also knows there's no way they could do it. There's no way. He knows what's in them. And so I think that's an important lesson because, you know, we make fun of Peter. Like, oh, Peter's just this crazy guy. He's like, yeah, I'll die for you. And then he obviously denies him three times before the sun comes up. But he knew that in Peter's heart, in the disciples' heart, they didn't want to betray him. They wanted to be strong. They wanted that to be true. They wanted to stick with him at all costs if they could. But they they couldn't, right? Because remember, they were self-reliant, not Christ-reliant. I think of texts like uh, Romans 7. I mentioned this last service. It's been on my mind lately just because it's it's such an interesting text. But you got Romans 1 through 6 where Paul is giving this amazing text explanation, theological treaties on what the gospel is, how might we be saved, what did Christ accomplish? And then this random spot in Romans 7, he breaks out and just says, the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. I want to please Christ, but in my flesh I sin. I don't want to sin, but I end up doing it. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? Christ Jesus will save me. Romans 8.1, right after that, he goes, and says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a believer, we experience this tension. The, the Spirit's willing, we want to please Christ, but our flesh is weak. We often don't. We often choose rather sin. We often choose rather to spurn his name and not bring him glory, but to go off into all manner of ungodliness and sinfulness, right? We, we, we feel that tension, we do that. So Christ is pleading with them. The flesh is weak. The spirit's willing. I know you love me, <laughs> but not, not in a perfect way, obviously. <clears throat> and so he had every right to be angry with them. 
and I think righteously angry, they're abandoning the Son of God in his hour of need, right? He had every right to be offended. He had every right to um, have wrath instead of compassion, but he remains faithful. He even interrupts his strength-giving prayers to come over and encourage them. You know, it's like he's praying, he's getting down with the Father, he's doing his thing. He's like, oh man, i got to go check on him. Goes and checks on him, they're falling asleep. He kind of goes back and does it multiple times. He warns them that temptation is coming, that they're about to fall into, right? And so rather than feeling like, oh, I'm going to do anything for you, Jesus, pleading with God, God, I'm weak, help me, right? But they don't take his advice, obviously. He's encouraging them, stay awake, stay awake. Um, and... Uh, you know, like we mentioned, the disciples took a posture of self-determination, self-reliance instead of Christ's reliance. So I do just want us to remember our Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love in our weakness. He is strong, and he makes us strong. He's pleading with them, okay? And this uh, same effectual prayer that we see Jesus engaged in right now in the Garden of Gethsemane is also the same effectual prayer that he's engaged in right now at the throne of God for you and I. So Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says that Christ indeed right now is at the right hand of the Father who is forever interceding for us. It's amazing. The same prayers, the same God-man praying in the garden, your will be done, is the same God-man praying for us at the throne of God right now. God, your will be done. God, protect my sheep. We can feel a lot of things. He's probably praying for us, you know, especially individually too and corporately. But he is interceding for us. So I want us, before we move on to point number four and kind of come to a close here, I want us to think about Christ's words, okay? In verse 40, um, in 41, listen to what he says. He says, and again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Okay? Jesus says, Stay awake. Now we know that the disciples were sleeping because of sorrow. Luke's account says that because they were full of sorrow, that's why they fell asleep, right? Have you ever had one of those days where you're like, I don't even want to do anything right now. Forget dinner. I'm just going to sleep because it was terrible. Just me. That's fine. I've had those days, you know? Um, but they are sorrowful, they are in the midst of temptation, and they fall asleep over and over and over again. It's like this slumber. And I want us to remember this is, yeah, both a real thing that happened to them physically, but it is clearly a spiritual analogy for us as well, right? We slumber, we sleep. And just like when you go to sleep at nighttime, you don't kind of see yourself fading it's the same way spiritually. You don't normally see yourself fading. What happens is you start to believe a little bit of lies, or you start to dabble on a little bit of sin, and before you know it, you're asleep. And Christ is saying in this text to you and I right now, stay awake. Stay awake. This life is, is serious, right? This war going on is serious. Your soul is serious. Stay awake. Stay awake. Christ pleads. And we ought to stay awake. Don't slumber. There's so many, uh, you know, kind of analogies that Christ uses, uh, parables that Christ uses to help us remember to be alert, to stay awake. But don't doze. Don't doze. And I pray this morning, if you've been dozing for a long time, that Christ is using this text to warn you, wake up. Look, it's just, it happens a little bit at a time, right? You start to believe, I don't know, is Christ really that good? 
Is he the only way? Are all other religions really not true? Is it really that big of a deal that I did this or that? You go on. All these lies you start to believe, all these sins you start to engage in, they come slowly, but they come surely. And Christ says, wake up. It's much better to be awake than it is asleep. Okay, now the good stuff. Number four, uh, we also see Christ's triumph. So you have his endurance, you have his prayers, you have his compassion, and you see his triumph. Christ triumphs over Satan, over death, by submitting to the Father's will and setting his face to the cross. Make no mistake, this is a big victory. Capital V, baby, okay? He triumphs by setting his face to the cross. Verse 42 says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He says, get up, it's time. It's time. We're going to do this thing. I'm about to be arrested. Y'all are about to scatter. I'm about to be abandoned. I'm about to be beaten mercilessly, marred beyond recognition, crucified to a cross, and I'm going to conquer death. So I say, behold our Christ. He endures against all of darkness to rescue us unworthy sinners. It's an amazing thing, okay? You see the triumph in the angel helping him. You see triumph in him facing down the crucifixion. So Christ knew his betrayer was coming. And now after pleading with the Father, he is ready to endure the cross. He is ready. And we know from Hebrews 12 that somehow, either despite all the agony that he was going through, or in transition from that moment of agony into what he was doing, that he, and what does Hebrews 12 say? It tells us to run our race with endurance. Why? Because Christ Jesus ran his race for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? Well, Christ went to the cross with joy. I'm sure there was a mix of emotions there, right? But nonetheless, Christ, in this moment, as he walks forward, knowing what's going to happen, he does it with joy. Why? That was the joy of rescuing his people. It was the joy of his glory, fulfilling all that he had set out to do, all that he had commanded from the beginning of time till now being fulfilled. Christ was going to rescue his people, and he stands up in triumph and in great joy. Man, our God has triumphed. Christ in himself has bore and endured your sorrow, deepest sorrow you could ever experience, your shame. He has endured your sins by becoming sin for you and giving you righteousness. He has endured all of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of your misery. Christ Jesus, the God-man, has borne it all on his back and like a sheep led to the slaughter was silent, not because he was weak, but because he was strong for you because you're weak. He endured it all on his back, in his body, Like I mentioned, marred beyond recognition, tortured, slain, and was victorious over it all for you and I. This is the gospel we preach. This is the gospel we sing. This is the gospel we celebrate. And it's not one that lifts us up to feel good about ourselves. It's one that buries us into Christ, that we might find life in him, that we might find confidence in him, that we might find joy in him. How in the world does a Christian rejoice in the midst of sorrow? How? You've seen it. I've seen members of this church do it. How do you rejoice in the midst of sorrow and suffering, in pain, 
You do it through Christ. He's all and in all. He's already endured it. And so now we can endure with joy, with hope, in our endurance, in our praying, in Christ's compassion for us, in his triumph. We are now more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who did not count his life as worthy to be lived through his own accord, but gave himself for us freely. And now he will give us all things. And so I want us to rejoice, and not in a frivolous way, not in like a pretend way where it's like I'm just going to pretend to be happy because things really suck. I want us to find deep and abiding joy in all our sorrow, all our pain, all of our suffering, all of our sin, because he's already done it. He's already done it. He's already shed blood over that so that we might look to him and believe in him and rejoice together. So I want to pray for us. just want to ask God to help us. Um, if you're going through <clears throat> moments of sorrow or moments of triumph, I think this text is relatable to us, and I, I would just beg you to come to the Lord. Just come to him. He's won it all. Uh, this is the whole point of this series in Mark is to look at the king, King Jesus. Uh, he got the throne in a way we never could imagine. And he did it in such a way that brings us along with him to reign with him. And we will forever because he has loved us. And so let us pray now uh, to the one who's loved us. Let's pray together. You can bow your heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word. There's so much encouragement in this text, Lord, and I pray that we'd feel it. I pray for each one of us, Lord, in this room right now, that you would help us to uh, look to you. Look to you, the one who's conquered all. Christ, through your endurance of deep sorrow, agony, pain, you have borne our wrath. You've soaked up every last drop so that we may have righteousness and life and joy, not just now, but forever and ever. God, you have done it. You've done amazing things, and you continue to do amazing things in our lives. I pray that in the midst of our sorrow right now, Lord, that we look to you. God, if any of us have been asleep, I pray we'd wake up. God, would you jolt us to be alive, to be awake, to be alert, to be sober, so that we might worship you, walk with you, and not get lulled back to sleep. Help your saints, Lord. We need you. Thank you for enduring such great hostility and wrath and pain for us that we might never even get a drop of it or a taste of it forever, but we will definitely rejoice in your goodness. And so help us now as we take of your supper and respond in singing hymns. May we rejoice greatly. And we ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.